Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. are listening to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. This week, we have a couple more case updates for you. And for episode 354, we are going to be discussing some instances of almost getting away with murder. With the wide breadth of solved and unsolved cases we've covered over the years, new evidence and information sometimes finds its way to our virtual doorstep, usually sent in by you, the wine coven. And that really shakes up the makeup of the case coverage provided in the initial episode. So today we bring you almost getting away with murder case updates. But first, let's get into our pairing for this week's episode. Our pairing this week is gross and buckle up. So we found the Jinx cocktail. Again, this is like the grossest thing I've ever seen. Um, And if you want to mix things up, this recipe does call for 7-Up, but you could easily sub that out with sparkling wine if you want to cut the sweetness, up the booziness, and just incorporate that wine element into your recipe. So... What you're going to need for this, you're going to need vodka. You're going to need 7-Up or, like I said, sparkling wine. You're going to need blueberry schnapps. You're going to need Bailey's Irish cream and Shyamalan Twist. You're going to need grape juice, okay? So you're going to pour in 5 ounces of Bailey's, 10 ounces of blueberry schnapps, 20 ounces of vodka, 10 ounces of grape juice, and then top that bad boy off with some Sprite, some 7-Up. You stir it up, you pour it over ice, and um, you gulp it down. You gulp it down. As always, we very much appreciate the listeners who send in these updates, and we love hearing about it and can't always follow everything. So thank you for doing that for us. And if you have updates on any cases we've covered over the years, please submit them on the contact page of our website, whiningcrimepodcast.com, or email us at whiningcrimepodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, case update. This next clip is from episode 114, Mistrial Murders. This one was bonks. Um, Rules regarding mistrials are different in different countries. Obviously, they have different judicial systems. So... Just as a kind of an example of a very bizarre mistrial and how they handle that kind of shit in Canada. Um, oh, I love Canada. Canada, America's hat. Mm-hmm. Mm, top of the hat. Keeping to us warm. This is from a 2010 article from The Star, which is a Canadian publication. And the headline is Crown, which I'm. Assuming that just means... Uh, That's like the state or like yeah. the It's referring government. to a state prosecutor in this context. Mm. So Crown, quote, making strange faces causes murder mistrial. <laughs> oh, please. Some people <laughs> can't jokes. help that. Uh, yeah, well, that's just my face. They used to call me old rubber face at my old job. Yeah, some some people are very <laughs> expressive. Looking at you, my friend Kelly. Well, I do have Can't a picture. I have a picture of this guy on the drive. So, are you serious? Yeah, but yes, I don't want you to look at it he? quite yet. 
Okay. So this is re- this is um, regarding the case uh, of the death of two-year-old Emily Lucas. Very sad. Oh. Um, so on Monday, this is this is all quotes from the article. On Monday, the jury was dismissed in the second mistrial in the case against Yikes. Erica Mendieta, Emily's mother, who was charged with second-degree murder in the toddler's death. A prosecutor from the first trial, Assistant Crown Attorney Paul Alexander, distracted the jury and intimidated the defendant by making faces while sitting in the gallery as a spectator. Oh. Okay, that is odd. So I he yeah, wasn't even... That. I don't like that. He wasn't even the attorney in this specific case. He was the attorney in the first case that resulted in a mistrial. He was just sitting in the audience making what fucking the faces. Fuck? Go away, dude. Like, don't. Quote, I've been involved in the criminal justice system for 30 years, and I can't say that I've heard of of similar circumstances, says Attorney General Chris Bentley. It's just very, very unusual. Last week, the jury wrote a note to Justice Nola Garten stating that they wanted a man removed from the gallery. Quote, Mm -hmm. we find him very distracting and he's making strange faces all the time. We feel very uncomfortable with him. They did not know at the time who Alexander was. So they didn't realize that he was the attorney from the first trial. Damn. Is he a chameleon? Um, Well, you can go to the drive now and look at it. It's uh, he's a man in this hat. He's a man in the hat. He looks like a fucking villain. He looks like a villainous. uh, What's that guy's name? Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, he does look like he would be Indiana Jones' nemesis. He looks like a portlier version of the villain from The Rescuers Down Under. Totally. Yeah. 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 This guy like hunts rare eagles. Mm-hmm. He hunts and his rare scarf eagles. Is for hideous. Fun. Golden eagles. Joanna. Oh my God. Jo- <laughs> <laughs> Joanna. Where are my eggs? Oh my God. I forgot. <laughs> I'm sweating. I need to take my we shirt off. We need to watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, should we go topless again? Take your top off. I no, mean, it's maybe. like winter here. I'm good. <laughs> Okay, so the defense counsel brought forth a motion for a mistrial, and Mendieta testified. So that was the mother. That was the mother who was accused of killing her daughter. So Mendieta testified in the jury's absence that Alexander was rolling his eyes, shifting awkwardly, and making faces during Crown Attorney Allison McPherson's yep. cross examination. Literally, McPherson's cross examination. <laughs> yeah, that still photo of him. It looks like you can you could see him moving yeah, in the photo, I know. like yeah, shifting his, his, his eye, rolling his fucking eyes, and being a little any creep photo dick. of this man is a gif. And I yeah. lo- and I looked for more photos of him because I wanted to find a photo of him making that creepy fucking face, but there there weren't any, um, mm-hmm. and I didn't find any more photos of him. But this one was like honestly creepy enough. So Mendieta so says, he, his look intimidated me a lot. It made me feel very uncomfortable. And then she said that it made her nervous and it changed the way that she answered her questions during her cross-examination. So that's a yep, big deal. mistrial, mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. She said that she didn't know she had the ability to challenge his presence in the court until the jury wrote that note. Wow. Um, so an investigation was launched. Uh, quote, we're trying to get this prosecution back on as quickly as possible. It's a serious case, and it's important that we do that. Um, so her first trial ended with just a hung jury. There wasn't an issue of this dude making weird fucking faces. 
and so then, this is the the second trial was another mistrial because of yep, this dude. Yep. Yep. Oh, so experts okay. say that it's unlikely that Mendieta, age 34, can reasonably expect a third trial to be fair. Quote, it's subject well, to the law of diminishing returns, says Alan Young, a law professor at Osgood Hall. Each successive trial has the potential to become less reliable. It's very important in law to get it right the first time around, he said, noting that the United Kingdom has a strict policy to cut it off after two trials, whereas Canada assesses it on a case-by-case basis. Wow. So I, I think it would that, depend on the place. Like, if you're in London... You can find jurors, you know, presumably unless it's like a major, major case, you can find fresh jurors and it's not an issue. But if you're in like the Yukon territories, Licky yeah. End. Yeah, Licky exactly. End. Where they're like limited potential jurors to begin with then I can see that being really hard. Well, I don't even think it's a matter of sourcing jurors. Um, it's just a matter of going over the same shit and like leaving room for stories to change. And it's also another thing when you're hearing the other side's evidence, how you can rework your evidence. You know, I know that they're supposed to share anyway, but it's mm-hmm. probably different when you're actually in trial. Mm. So uh, Frank Adiero, former president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, said that repeated prosecution of an individual for the same offense can become an abusive process, which I absolutely agree like with. Curtis fucking Flowers. Well, that's why we have this double jeopardy clause. So if you're just mm-hmm. declaring mistrial after mistrial after mistrial, then in some people's eyes, that's a violation of that Fifth Amendment. And it absolutely can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, He said, when the line is crossed, depends on the length of time since the charge was laid, the conduct of the crown, so the state, the nature Mm -hmm. of the charge, and the effect on the defendant's fair trial rights. Um, On Monday, Mendieta's defense lawyers tabled a motion to allow Garten, that's the judge, to rule on the case alone based on evidence already heard. The unusual proposal would save the courts the cost of another jury trial, but it seems difficult considering Garten, the judge, already said Alexander's behavior affected Mendieta's demeanor on the stand. Uh, Garten says in her ruling, this makes the assessment of Miss Mendieta's credibility somewhat problematic for the triers of fact. So, yeah, this case was just has been totally fucked up. And this asshole yeah. attorney who was not involved in the second trial, he was just there as an observer, was fucked fucking with the again. jury, was fucking with the defendant. That fucker should get disbarred. Seriously, it's just so it's so not right on so many levels. Like if you cannot conduct yourself pro- like ethically and professionally, then you I should could, not be able to do that job. I could see it. I could see it being very subjective. And something that the defense attorneys latch onto and spin it as like, this was outrageous behavior, blah, 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 blah. And I could also see it as like, he attended one day of the new trial and acted totally fine. You know what I mean? Like, I could, we weren't there. I get what you're saying. The jury had a problem with him. Yeah, the, ju- the jury like was the one who initiated him getting asked to be removed because yeah. it, it wasn't, ju- I'm assuming it wasn't just one day. It wasn't just one person's uh, impression of him. It was the entire right. jury and it was so um, 
disruptive that they fully requested from the judge to have him removed. Yeah, right. I, this so guy's that a fuck. Lends I don't like him. To it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I could see in other instances, like it being very subjective and the defense Absolutely. just like using oh, it. I agree. Yeah. Um, so just one more quick little shallow dive, just because you all might be actually familiar with this case. Um, this is another one from a 2017 article from the Boston Globe about the burning death of 19-year-old Jessica Chambers. A man oh. named Quentin Tellis was on trial. So the juror in this story, the jurors go deliberate after closing remarks, and then they come back with a verdict, as you know you would expect. Mm-hmm. And as if, you are wont to do. If these names sound familiar, Jessica's case was the subject of uh, the Oxygen documentary show Unspeakable Crime, The Killing of Jessica oh. Chambers. Oh. Hashtag justice for Jessica. Mm-hmm. It's this. It's this case. Okay. So this is from that article. Before the decision was read, Judge Gerald Chatham asked if the 12-person panel had unanimously agreed on a verdict. A male juror spoke the shocking words, we didn't all agree. That started a chain of events that led to a hung jury and a mistrial in the murder trial of Quentin Tellis and sparked a wave of emotions for his family and the relatives of Jessica Chambers, understandably. Mm -hmm. For the Chambers family, it ended up being pain and frustration. For the relatives of Tellus, it was relief and joy. Mm-hmm. After the verdict disagreement, the judge asked the panel to continue deliberating. He's like, "Okay, come back with this fucking verdict that's supposed to be unanimous. Go back to your sure. go back to your room and keep talking about Make this. Make it work. Make Do it work. Your job. Make it work." <laughs> Shortly, Tim Gunn as as a judge. (laughs) Make it work. Shortly afterward, a court clerk read what was believed to be the final verdict. Once again, not guilty. Tellus's relatives smiled. Chambers's family cried. Then the judge polled the jury just to be safe. Well, actually, they have to do that anyway. You have to go down the row and say, yes, 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 yes. I think that he's guilty or innocent or whatever. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he pulled the jury seven for guilty, five for not guilty. So once again, this was not fucking unanimous. And where and is the disconnect? Even, yeah, yeah, what the fuck? How did that? Uh, Let okay. me tell you. They all. They all. I assume did you're going to answer math. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved integrated math. I will stick by it. <sighs> Incredible. Spectators looked at each other in dismay. How could the verdict be not guilty if seven people said guilty? The jury had been instructed by the judge that under the capital murder charge, all 12 of them must agree on a guilty verdict. But the instructions did not say that the entire panel of seven black individuals and five white individuals must also unanimously agree on a not guilty verdict. So this was an issue of semantics. There was a typo in the judge's instructions. He said that they had to agree unanimously on a guilty verdict, but he did not say that the not guilty verdict had to be unanimous as well. Oh, Jesus Christ. So they thought if there was at least one fly in the ointment for not guilty, it was not guilty. I mean, the hairs that are split in a jury room like that, I can testify. It's got to be uh-huh, so that in- you're intense. Ta- you are talking about the rules and the minutiae of what's given to you by the judge, like, extensively. Well, mm. I mean, that makes sense because you are literally deciding the fate of, like, 
someone's life and how that affects mm-hmm. all the other lives that that crime, you know, and the touched. and the rules for unanimity for juries, I think, can vary depending on the charge. I sure. don't think it has to be unanimous all the time mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. petty theft. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure. I'm not a fucking lawyer, but, but you know, they give the instructions, and if there's something left out, then the, then there's questions, and then that just snowballs into the jury having some sort of assumed understanding of what they're doing and talking about, and <laughs> right. like fucking not. So right, right, right. Okay, so uh, let's see. With corrected instructions in hand, it didn't take long for the jury to tell the judge that it was hopelessly deadlocked. A mistrial was declared. Because then, of course, at that point, in your mind, the discussion's over. It's right. hard to get back into it. Mm-hmm. Defense lawyer Alton Peterson called the events very unusual. I've never seen that happen before, he said, who has he, and Alice, Alan, Alton Peterson has 19 years of experience, so <laughs> uh, it's unusual. The district attorney said at the time that TELUS would be retried, a second jury was unable to come to un- a unanimous decision in the next trial, which was one year later. Meanwhile, Tellis was serving a five-year sentence for a burglary conviction, and he was also charged during that time frame with the stabbing death of 34-year-old Meng Chun Tsao. Nailed it. As far as Mm -hmm. I can tell, currently he's awaiting that trial and also a third trial for the Chambers case. Well, at least he's in prison awaiting all this stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but he's in a whole heap of trouble, and if these mistrials continue, then <laughs> you're, you're not helping anyone, jury. Yeah. Also, you can ask the for clarification jury. from the judge when you're deliberating. Right. So I, yeah. it's too bad that that, had, that didn't come up, you know? You can ask mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I could see something like so semantically, uh, what seems so small to like the average person. Mm-hmm. Not even thinking to ask that question. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. Anyway. All right. So that's well, my seg. In Dang, girl. depth. Good yeah. job. This next clip is from episode 126, No Man's Land. And when I tell you I think about this a lot, I do. This is my Roman Empire. It is crazy to me that we let national parks get away with this shit. <laughs> But actually, on that note, I have an update for us. So stick around to the end of this segment and I will give you that update. You know, I like to instruct you how to get away with murder. (laughs) Yep. We do know this. Here we go. We're all on a list. (laughs) If you want to kill someone and get away with it, you should do it in the 50 square mile zone of Yellowstone National Park that is located in the state of Idaho. I have a, a picture because I know that all three of us are kind of geographically challenged. So yep. go to the drive. Uh-huh. Um, this will be on the blog. Uh, there's a map showing Yellowstone National Park. And then there's like a strip along the northern and western edge that falls into Montana. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a strip on the west, the bottom western edge that falls in Idaho. Yep. So keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, this zone, that specifically the zone in Idaho, is called the Zone of Death. Oh, and yep. it's a lovely violet color. 
pale violet. Mm-hmm. A violent violet. <laughs> a dusty violet. Mm, so dusty. So in the zone of death, there are no roads. And most importantly, there are no permanent human inhabitants. Hello. The Sixth Sounds Amendment. Sounds like my dream of- neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't fucking go here. <laughs> that shadowy place. The Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution dictates that a jury must be comprised of people who live in both the state and the federal district where the crime was committed. Mm. The park is within the jurisdiction of Wyoming um, because I guess they couldn't really split it up the way that the law is now. Okay. Um, But this area is in the state of Idaho and no one lives in this overlapping area, so no jury could be formed. So this case, if there was this hypothetical murder case, could never go to trial. Uh-huh. The park itself is federal land, so the case could not simply be Idaho's problem for, like, a variety of reasons. So this is all theoretical. No one's well, tested this yet. Or am yeah. I there wrong? Was a ca- there was a case... Um, it wasn't a murder case, but it was a guy who illegally shot an elk. So he he was arrested for it and he went to trial. But like the state really, they really could have played their cards to get this loophole fixed at that time and set a responsible precedence for this mm-hmm. whole situation. But they completely dropped the ball. Uh, the guy ended up taking a plea deal. Something I don't really remember. So there hmm. is a precedent for it, but not when it comes to homicide. Okay. Yet. Okay. In 2005, Michigan State University law professor Brian Colt wrote a paper titled The Perfect Crime, which outlines this entire anomaly uh, in the context of a homicide. Sounds like Brian it Colt was, is your soulmate. Sorry, Corey. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I actually fell in love with him a little bit while reading this, while researching okay. this. <laughs> Uh, It was published in the Georgetown Law Journal, and he also sent it to multiple government authorities to alert them of this potentially very hazardous loophole. And as far as I can tell to this day, nothing has been done to fix it. Okay. Hmm. So here is an excerpt from a 2016 Vox article by Dylan Matthews. Quote, the article's release and subsequent press blitz didn't accomplish anything. Then Senator Larry Craig, who's a Republican uh, in Idaho, promised to look into the issue, but did not do anything beyond that. Representative Mike Simpson, also a Republican in Idaho, who is still in office, um, actually was in office as of 2016. I didn't bother to check to see if that was still correct, (laughs) stated through a spokesperson that he didn't think the zone of death was a problem and argued that we could, quote, count on checks and balances to remedy the issue should a murder be committed, a response which betrays the a marked lack of understanding of what the term checks and balances actually Mm -hmm. refers to. For sure. Yeah. I feel like a lot of government officials forget what that actually means. (laughs) Or that it theoretically exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true on both counts. Mm -hmm. Theoretically. So not only did my future husband, Brian Colt, send his paper (laughs) to the people who could actually fucking fix it before his paper was published, he also literally wrote draft legislative language that would close this loophole, but the government agencies in both Idaho and Wyoming and uh, and also federal agencies are unwilling to take action. He wrote it out. 
They had to copy and paste it into like the law. That's literally all they had to do. Copy, paste, vote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why might they be unwilling to take action? You may ask. Here is another excerpt from that Vox article. But another point the Department of Justice made was more consequential. Quote, splitting Yellowstone into the district courts for Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana would also split it between the 9th and 10th circuits, uh, my boyfriend Brian Cult writes. Oh, mm. Brian, Senator he of everything. Mm. Yeah. Senator Mike Enzi, a Republican from Wyoming, and Ooh. others were wary of this because it would create a new and unwelcome burden if environmentalists could use this foothold to challenge the Park Service's management decisions in the liberal and quirky Ninth Circuit. <laughs> so Lord. they want to keep they want to keep the park under exclusively the jurisdiction of the Tenth Circuit, which is more conservative, which mm-hmm. is less likely to, I don't know, fucking protect the environment in yeah, the park. stop them mm-hmm. from drilling for oil. Fracking. Correct. Uh-huh. Whatever you think about the idea that keeping environmental cases out of a liberal court is worth leaving the zone of death in place, it just isn't true that fixing the loophole would be would necessarily allow venue shopping for appeals about, about Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, As Cult writes, there is nothing to preclude Congress from designating the Tenth Circuit as the proper venue for all administrative appeals concerning Yellowstone National Park. So, Mm -hmm. yes, that's a possible reason that they want to keep it in the jurisdiction of the Tenth Circuit. But as long as they're rewriting the legislation concerning the park anyway, they could easily just slip in OPS. It's going to remain under control of the Tenth Circuit. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just like they don't fucking understand the problem Mm-hmm. and how they could fix it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no fucking reason they don't fix it. Okay, so here's my update on the zone of death. And this is from an Idaho Capital Sun article from February of 2022. And I haven't been able to find like a super update on it since then. And I will explain why. But this is from that article. Quote, Representative Colin Nash from Boise is sponsoring House Joint Memorial 3 which calls on Congress to close the zone of death loophole. So Nash says, quote, what this joint memorial does is it says to Congress, fix this legal loophole that exists, put this 50 square mile section of Yellowstone National Park into the federal judicial district of the state of Idaho. God, that's a tongue twister. So that we maintain jurisdiction and can seat a constitutionally legitimate jury to try people who may commit crimes in that swath of Yellowstone Park. So when asked if this memorial would actually move Congress into fixing the loophole, Nash replied, quote, we can try our darndest. So it's a memorial. I don't know. It's not like a bill. It's not a resolution. It's it's it doesn't have the force of law behind it. But House Joint Memorial 3 did pass in March of 2022. It is currently unclear how much effect that it had because, after all, it being a memorial, it was intended to to raise awareness about the issue and spur Congress into taking action at the federal level because they couldn't do anything at the state level. It's it's a memorial. So if anyone has an update on this, please let me know because I'm very curious. I feel like we would have heard about it. If Congress did something, also it would have come up in my Google search just now. But uh, 
yeah, raising awareness. We got our little cross ribbon for the zone of death now. And uh, hopefully, hopefully it does get fixed because this is a criminal playground and we should take it seriously. Now let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Resolutions are all about you. And Brooklyn and wants to make sure you are investing in yourself this year. And your biggest self-care investment is sleep, baby. So why not upgrade your night routine now with Brooklyn and award-winning home essentials? Yeah. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've definitely heard us talk about Brooklyn and before. And that's because we, love, we love them. And you know how like that feeling when you go to like a hotel and you just mm. slip into that fresh, clean bed mm-hmm. with like smooth, soft, silky, breathable linens. Mm-hmm. That is how all of my sheets feel now. Yep. Because I have stocked up on Brooklyn sheets. You have, babe. I have. And I start like before we had Brooklyn as a sponsor, I think I had two sets of sheets. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they weren't that great to begin with. Sure. So I, I'm all about luxury, especially in 2024, people. It is a new year. It is a new you. Mm. You got to try their sheets. You got to try their uh, their bath towels. I'm obsessed with their bath towels. I'm a very big fan of their bath towels. They got candles. They got eye masks. It's basically like home essentials mixed with self-care. Mm-hmm. You've, you got to start your year off on the right foot. You got to set the tone for the rest of 2024, which is why you should make that bedding swap that you have been eyeing. Brooklinen's bedding bundles are customizable with high quality sheets, comforters, and so much more to make any room feel new for 2024. I love it. So start the year off right by investing in yourself with Brooklinen's sleep and self-care essentials. Visit in-store or online at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And use code GALS for $20 off your order of $100 or more. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Use promo code GALS for $20 off and treat your sheets. Try them. Do you ever check your, like, bank statement and you just see like subscription after subscription and you don't really know what it is and it's mm-hmm. it's like nominal amounts it's like five bucks here eight bucks there 9.99 but like that stuff really adds up and if you don't know exactly what you're paying for it can be a mystifying and b mm-hmm. frustratingly expensive yeah so that is why we have partnered with rocket money because it it is a, like this beautiful oracle that mm-hmm. tells you what you're paying for, how much you're paying, and you can decide whether or not you want to keep that subscription and cherry on top. If you don't want to keep it, Rocket Money helps you cancel it with the click of a button. Mm-hmm. Rocket Money is amazing. It's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. So I can see all of my subscriptions in one place. And if I see something I don't want, don't need anymore, forgot I had. Uh-oh. I, yeah, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service, which like as a millennial with phone anxiety, hi, mm-hmm. talk about a gift from heaven. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. 
All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Like, that's wild. That's so much money. That's a trip. Like, you could have a really nice weekend away for that almost $1,000. Absolutely. Hi. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash gals. That's rocketmoney.com slash gals. One more time, rocketmoney.com slash gals. And treat your subscriptions. Trade them. Welcome back and thank you again so much to our sponsors. First off, we will be revisiting the case of Oscar Pistorius from 257 Amputee Crimes, released on February 17th, 2022, which is a name you have probably been hearing a lot more on the news lately. But don't worry, I'll be jumping back in at the end to provide the most recent updates on this case. Okay, well, get on with it. I'm ready. It's We're ready for your case. <laughs> okay, this He's is a so fan pick brought to you by... Fanficker Kristen, mm-hmm. and you will have definitely heard about it, but it's still important to cover, and we're not going to be able to cover every single part of it because it was a huge story in the news, and we're going to cover as much of it as we can cover. Mm-hmm. Are we going to be missing parts? Oh, my God. Okay. So Oscar <laughs> Leonard Carl Pistorius was born on... Oh. God, this guy. Yeah. November 22nd, 1986 in Johannesburg, South Africa. Ever heard of it? Weird. His family was Afrikaner with some Italian ancestry. That means that they were like descended from like white Dutch people that lived in South Africa for a very long time. Yeah. And they speak Afrikaans. Really cool language, though. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like a it's like Dutch if I'd. Yeah. It sounds really bizarre to the uninitiated, and I love it. Yeah. When he was 11 months old, both of his lower legs had to be amputated below the knee because of a congenital defect, and he had been born, like, missing the outside of both feet and both fibulae, which I don't really understand that sentence. Interesting. So yeah. his feet were, like, just super narrow? I don't Missing really... the outside bones of the feet? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but there was something. We are doctors. Fibulae. That caused the, the, when he was a baby, they were like, okay, this makes sense to amputate both lower legs below the knee. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the fibulae, the fibulae. So, you know, the bottom part of your leg, mm-hmm. you have the main part, and then you have a skinnier part on the, out, like alongside it. Mm-hmm. That skinnier part is the fibula, the fibula. Oh, so this was a missing part of his leg? Both. And Didn't you foot. say so basically the the outside portion so it's just the two bones straight down in the leg and just one bone out in the foot. Because your leg has a secondary skinny bone and your feet also has secondary side so, bones. So he didn't have that secondary bone. He just had real skinny legs and feet. Whatever. He's eleven months old. So he basically he has no recollection of a time before his double double amputation. Gotcha. At 13 months old, he was fitted with prosthetic feet, and within a few months, he learned to walk. So kind of, I feel, I mean, I don't remember, I don't know when babies learn to walk, but I feel like right on time, I don't know, don't at me. Uh, Six, I I don't know. There's there's such a wide array of what's like, quote unquote, normal in terms of development. Whatever. He's walking as a baby, as a toddler, with his prosthetics. 
Despite his disability, Pistorius excelled as an athlete throughout his childhood, and by the time he was in high school, he had distinguished himself at rugby, water polo, tennis, and boxing. Big athlete. Sports especially became a refuge for him during a handful of different childhood tragedies. So, number one, his parents divorced when he was six, and like, whatever, no big deal, but like, that can be traumatic for some people. Also, his- well, it's kind of a big deal. I know. I just, I just have <laughs> so little sympathy for this man, because he right. is a piece of shit. Yeah, but people whose parents get divorced when they're a young age is oftentimes traumatic. Whatever. Uh, apparently, it can be traumatic. I don't fucking know. So, <laughs> his father was absent from his life. Oh, that must be hard. And then when he was 15, his mother- Kenyon's like, mine was too, but I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> yeah. I didn't become an abuser. It's fine. This one is, this one is tough. When he was 15, his mother, whom he was very close to, because she basically raised him as a single parent, mm-hmm. died from a drug reaction following a hysterectomy. Oh. So just kind of like a freak. Yeah. Right. Unexpected. For what should be a pretty common procedure. And- yeah. Like, yeah. my mom had a hysterectomy when I was, oh, yeah. like, 12. You know, I... We, 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 it's a standard even, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What year was that? Was that in, like, re, like mo, you know, modern was, times? Well, <laughs> think about how old we how old we were when we were 14. Yeah, so early 2000s. Yeah, yeah okay. How old we were when we were 14. Got it. <laughs> what yeah. year it was. Yeah. I, I, tra- I followed it. I know. It's fucked. <laughs> so in 2003, after suffering a knee injury that forced him to quit rugby, the fact that he could play rugby with prosthetics is like pretty amazing because rugby is just like such a physical and violent sport. But anyway, mm-hmm. probably helped that like he had had prosthetics since he was walking yeah, he at like all. Yeah, he doesn't right. know any other way to get right. around. But right. still, rugby is intense. So he discovered running and, quote, never looked back. <gasps> Run, Forest. So he was fitted with high-performance racing blades that were called Flex Foot Cheetahs and mm-hmm. began finishing sprint races in astonishingly fast times for a double amputee. He competed in both sprint events for below-knee amputees as well as non-disabled sprint events. So he was running in, like... Just your any, yeah. any event. Yeah. Both. Wasn't there controversy of whether those particular prosthetics More were, performance like... performance-enhancing? We will get to it. Okay. Yes. Mm. He kind of got the name, like, he would later get the name, like, Blade Runner because of the, like, type of prosthetics that he used for running mm-hmm. were called, like, racing blades, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. After he became a Paralympic champion, Pistorius sought to enter non-disabled international races, but he immediately began encountering obstacles. So, in particular, the in- International Association of Athletic Federations argued that the prosthetics that he used for racing, the blades, which were different from his everyday prosthetics, mm-hmm. these were they like were for designed running. for running, right? Actually, gave him an unfair advantage over mm-hmm. non-amputee athletes. Which, like, I, I kind of see their point, right? I do too, because they're made for running. They're made to propel. Mm-hmm. More so than I think a foot, a foot would be, and also I, I, I don't know this for sure, mm-hmm. but I am speculating that they might weigh less mm. than oh, yeah. a leg and a lower leg and foot. Yeah, a maybe have some spring type technology. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, yeah, I you're kind of like bionic at that 
point. Right. I kind of see their point. Yeah. I do. Is that Mm -hmm. bad? I totally see their point. Yeah. But ultimately, Pistorius overcame these objections and was allowed to compete in these events. Mm-hmm. So at the 2011 World Championships in Athletics, he became the first amputee to win a non-disabled World Track Medal. Wow. He then qualified for the 2012 Summer Olympics, making him the first double-leg amputee participant and only the 10th athlete in history to compete in both the Paralympic and the Olympic Games. Dang. Which is, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think one's athletic prowess mm-hmm. or disability counteracts their shittiness as a human being. Sure. But surely not. One for the record books. Okay. Mm -hmm. So these achievements skyrocketed him to international fame. He signed several lucrative endorsement deals and was the subject of numerous profiles in major publications. He was a big fucking deal. He was Blade Runner. He was on the cover of magazines. Mm -hmm. Big fucking deal. He's a hero. Yeah. Well, plus and the controversy, like everyone had heard of him. Right. Mm. There was controversy. He was like handsome. It mm-hmm. was it was just everything. So these profiles highlighted not just his athletic abilities, but his intense and often risk-seeking personality. Mm. Oh, great. Which risk-seeking can also be like a side effect of trauma and mm-hmm. PTSD. Totally. There are a lot of like vitamins that come back from war who then, you know, go through a period of like really high intense risk seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. Could also be a sign of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. It could also be that. I don't know. More I prefer to not to ever this. risk anything ever. <laughs> no. It's too I risky. Know, I don't know why you do that to yourself. No, I'm good. Why challenge yourself? I right. love my couch. Yep. Oh, God. So as one 2011 New York Times profile put it, quote, he liked fast cars and fast motorcycles and fast boats, and he sometimes veered towards recklessness. And fast women. Well, no. Don't say <laughs> and that. fast prosthetics. I was just expecting that to be the next <laughs> I was when you, thing when you, in this when super misogynistic. Cars and yeah. da, 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 that it, your brain finishes the sentence. Right. Goes to loose women. And well, don't Fast say. women. I know I'm not calling, I'm not referencing the victim of his crimes. I'm right. referencing the shitty writing of right. this article. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. I'll and the it. gross phrase that is loose women. Uh, fast <laughs> women. Get it right. I know. I'm grossing you out. Okay. Who sings fast car? Tracy oh, Chapman. Yes, yeah. That's different. a phenomenal. So sad. Song. Oh my God. I cry every time. Okay. A detail that came up often in profiles of Pistorius was a 2009 incident in which he crashed a speedboat into a submerged pier fracturing two ribs, his jaw, and his eye socket. Oh, stop, dude. He got into a major boating accident, Mm -hmm. and police found alcohol in the boat, but they didn't check his blood alcohol level at the scene because of Mm -hmm. his, like, extensive injuries, so then he kind of, like, got away with it because they Mm -hmm. couldn't prove that that he had been drinking. At the time. He had definitely fucking been drinking when he majorly fucking crashed this speedboat. Mm -hmm. Also, a Busted eye socket is one of those injuries that I just like. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Not good. So several journalists who interviewed Pistorius around this time also noted that his intensity sometimes crossed the line into paranoia. Mm, You don't say. After a reporter named Jonathan McAvoy uh, visited him at his home in Pretoria, 
which is kind of like an Afrikaner stronghold city in mm-hmm. South Africa. It's north of Johannesburg. It's close to Johannesburg, but it's another major city. And like a lot of Afrikaners live there. Mm-hmm. So it's a very white city. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. More or less, yes. So he wrote in the Daily Mail that, quote, in Oscar's bedroom lay one cricket bat and one baseball bat behind the door, a revolver by his bed, and a machine gun by the window. Mm-hmm. Honey. That's, it's by all the a window. bit much. That's gross that it was by the window. Yeah. It's, it's all gross. It's a fucking bit much. And also, I don't know for sure, but like, I fucking know for sure that he <laughs> definitely lived in like a gated right. complex with he guards. He does not need this no. level of. No. You're, you're not out there. Like, yes, in South Africa, there's high crime and people, you know, criminal gangs can get past security guards and, and you know, rob or whatever inside complexes that does happen but like that's paranoia it's mm-hmm. a bit it's a bit this much. is fucking excessive yeah so in 2012 another reporter named michael sokolov visited pistorius at home to interview him for a profile in the new york times magazine in this profile he relates a story that pistorius tells him about grabbing one of his guns in the middle of the night and tiptoeing downstairs to confront a possible intruder after his security alarm went off And this turned out to be a false alarm. Mm -hmm. But he's already, like, telling this profiler that, like, this is something that he does. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, Mm -hmm. with Zach, if I hear a noise and I, like, try to wake him up, he does absolutely fucking nothing. (laughs) Right. He's like, it's fine. It's fine. Like, there could be an (laughs) intruder in the room. And he'd be like, it's just just fine. fine. It's It's the wind. It's Josie. (laughs) That's kind of why I don't want to fix my super old floors because mm-hmm. it's it, I can hear Ray walking up the stairs yeah. or like through it's so creaky. You need the creaking. I love it. Yeah. And like just for context, like we ha- after living in South Africa, like we keep a golf club, you know, by the bed in case there's an intruder. I feel like that's a level of like in case there's an intruder precaution. Yeah, you and know, honestly, that's mostly for just like peace. Gun. That's just for peace of mind. You're not like a machine gun is super offensive. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's really I, aggressive. I think you're nuts, but yeah, I get it. I get it. Whatever. <laughs> so it's a golf club, whatever. So <laughs> this detail would take on an eerie significance just one year later. So Don't in like the early significance, don't like that. In the early morning hours of February 14th, 2013, so Valentine's Day, Pistorius called for emergency medical help, claiming that he had accidentally shot his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, believing her to be an intruder. Mm-hmm. Pistorius and Riva Steenkamp had been dating for only about three months at this point, so it was a very fresh relationship. He was 26. She was 29. She had been a very successful model since she was in her teens. She'd appeared in numerous like high profile ad campaigns, several reality TV shows. She's very well known in South Africa. She was like the face of um, some cosmetic brand in South Africa, maybe like Avon or something like she was a very successful working model. Mm hmm. Um, She also was, like, a fixture on, like, the Johannesburg social scene, and she had recently graduated from law school. She was way pretty. I remember seeing pictures of her. 
stunningly beautiful and brilliant and also like kind. And she had come overcome a lot of her own very serious physical obstacles in, in her past because mm. she had also been an avid horseback rider. And then she fell and broke her back. Ooh. In in her early twenties, wow! And she had to relearn how to walk. Wow, oh, honey! So they had like that too. They were both like high profile, very very pretty people who had like endured a lot mm-hmm. and found each other, and you know, on paper seemed like a great match made match. But you know, you just you never know what a relationship is like behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So on February thirteenth, just a few hours before her death, because he called police the early morning hours of the fourteenth, she sent Pistorius a text message that read, "Quote: You are an amazing person with so many blessings, and you are more than cared for." And he replied, "Stay tonight if you like." Pistorius okay. would later recount how. There's going to be a lot in here about like his version of events, mm-hmm. but like, are we doubting this text message? No. Well, the texts are are finite. Like that's kind of you can't. Well, we're not doubting the text messages. They were they'd been dating for three months, and he invited her to stay the night, and mm-hmm. they were sending kind of lovey dovey texts. But there are I also meant- other texts that okay. point to issues. I still have Brian Laundry fresh on my mind. Mm. So, like, I didn't know if he took her phone and, like, planted no. some misleading texts or whatever. Okay. No, that's not a uh, – not in this case. So, I just want to preface it. Like, there's going to be a lot of, like, his version of events, mm-hmm. which and are not – she's not around to advocate for herself. she's not around herself. to advocate yep. for herself. And his version of events are not fucking true. Mm-hmm. But we're just going to say, you know, say them here. But take everything with a fucking grain of salt. Mm-hmm. So Pistorius would later recount how he was awakened by a noise in the middle of the night and believing it to be an intruder and that Riva was still asleep in bed beside him. He claimed he grabbed his gun and then he heard a noise from behind the door within the bathroom. So like the ensuite bathroom. Mm -hmm. And in that bathroom, there was also like a separate little toilet room, which like classy. A water closet. I know. A poop door. A pe- a Sorry, poop door. yes, a water closet. A fucking yes, dream yes. of having a poop door someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he claimed to believe that the intruder had taken refuge in there, which like, yeah, that's totally what an intruder is going to do is lock himself inside your toilet room with no chance of escape. Right. So then he fired four shots through the lock toilet room door, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which like, why was it locked? Mm-hmm. Three Someone of which was using the bathroom. Three of which struck Riva, who was on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. He then he claims that he then used the cricket bat to break down the door, and then he, you know, he claims he did this in a panic after realizing that Riva was not in bed and putting it together that she was behind the toilet door, and she was who okay. he had shot at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So investigators don't fucking believe his story. He's arrested because, like, he shot and killed his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And his trial for murder began in March of 2013. However, it was soon delayed for several months so that he could undergo psychiatric evaluation at the request of the prosecutor in the case after the defense claimed that he had been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, which, like, fucking take a number. Dude. Yeah. Hi. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Right. 
that's not an excuse Mm-mm. for Absolutely shooting not. at uh, any little noise in your home. Mm-hmm. So after the evaluation determined that he could, in fact, be held criminally responsible for his actions, the trial resumed. This is super high profile mm-hmm. internationally. It was presided over by a judge named Fokozile Masipa and two other assessors who she appointed to help her decide on a verdict. And so in South Africa, there are no jury trials because it was too fraught Mm. post apartheid Mm -hmm. with race and everything and like you know jury determination i mean it's fucking fraught here in terms of race Mm -hmm. so anything everything's done with a judge so much of the testimony in the case hinged on whether or not pistorius had put on his prosthetic legs that night before oh, yeah. he walked across now. the bedroom mm-hmm. into the bathroom and fired the shots through the door. Mm-hmm. Because the defense claimed that he had not put on his prosthetics and then they used this as like... Proof that his response was like, in the moment, I right. thought there was an intruder. I'm running. I'm getting to the bathroom as, as fast, fast as, as I, I can, can to figure this out. And they also How tried to... He, wouldn't there have been evidence... If he had not put on his legs? Not necessarily. If he took them off and staged it, that he quickly hopped out of bed and ran to the bathroom. He could have staged it. It took a a minute for the, you know, authorities to get there after she was shot. Like angle of the bullet holes would be at a different height. Well, we'll get, we will get to it. Oh, okay. So the defense is claiming that he didn't put on his prosthetics. He was just, it was like heat of the moment, whatever, panic. And then they also, like, really tried to emphasize his, like, quote-unquote vulnerability by not having his prosthetics on and, like, I assume sort of using his arms to move and crawl across the room Mm -hmm. in case believing that there was an intruder in the house, he would feel, like, vulnerable in that moment. The prosecution, largely based on testimony from the lead detective in the case, a man named Hilton Botha, and, like, we will get to him, argued that the angle of the shots indicated that he had, in fact, taken time to put on his prosthetics, which is like, it takes it takes a minute. It can, yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends on, I don't know the style that he, necessarily that he had bedside or like, and he's also been using prosthetics his whole life. Right. So like, that's obviously going to come more naturally to him than another person. But yeah, there's going to be an amount of time that will pass right. that's different than launching out of bed immediately and running right. to the scene. Mm-hmm. Indicating a lack of panic and even premeditation. And also, presumably, he might have noticed during the process of attaching his prosthetic legs that Reva was not in bed beside him. If mm-hmm. he was like, oh, God, there's an intruder, da, 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 I got to put on my legs, got to grab my gun. Mm-hmm. And throughout that, like, she's not in bed beside him, not saying anything. It's like, wouldn't you assume she's in the bathroom? Right. That is more compelling to me than... The, like, lack of urgency tied to putting on the prosthetics. Because, like I said, he's been he's been using them his whole life. It's almost like muscle memory to But even if it takes 30 seconds. I mean, totally, think about totally. how long 30 seconds is, really. Right. right. If and it so, takes you know, 10 seconds. Yeah, right. and I, I personally think that if he did put them on, then he would have time to logically establish that yes his fiance or girlfriend whatever is not in bed with him right 
and put these pieces together. I am not defending him. I'm right. just saying that portion of it is it's more compelling, compelling to me yeah. than just the, oh, he put the legs on. There's no way that he was running to meet an intruder or investigate an intruder. It's like, that's your muscle memory. You're, you know, he, he's putting on his legs. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, I feel like if if you think that there's an intruder and you also think that you have enough time to put right. on your prosthetic legs, you then you're going to put them on. Yeah, exactly. As much as you can to right. be able to defend yourself against an intruder. So, like, I get that. But all that said, yeah, this guy's guilty, and I think this is all, yeah. like, I think yeah. it's bullshit. I mean, but, he yeah. fucking knew that she wasn't in bed beside him. So, right. one of the many dramatic twists in this hugely publicized trial came when it was revealed that Botha, the lead detective himself was facing charges of attempted murder stemming from a 2011 incident in which he and two other officers allegedly fired their guns at a taxi with oh. seven passengers inside in oh my in a God. in a drunken incident end quote uh so the lead detective was not great but that doesn't mean that doesn't like i don't know that doesn't invalidate this case guilt, i yeah. feel like especially because oscar pistorius is white mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah. Yeah. I mean, he shouldn't detect- have he shouldn't have been on duty at all. Right. Who's awaiting working. these fucking charges? Um, That's true. It's yes. all fishy. Right, right, right. So Botha was replaced as lead detective and the trial was briefly paused. When it resumed, much of the defense centered around an affidavit that Pistorius presented to the court in which he laid out again his version of events. In this, he's emphasizing his fear, his vulnerability. He mentioned that he was too scared to switch a light on in the house. Okay. Which, well, like, then. okay, but, like, you have a gun. hmm Like, I don't really, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The affidavit reads in part, quote, I grabbed my 9 millimeter pistol from b- underneath my bed. On my way to the bedroom, I screamed words to the effect for him or them to get out of my house, which, like, then why didn't you turn on a light if you're screaming mm-hmm. at them? And for Riva to phone the police. It was pitch dark in the bedroom and I thought Riva was in bed. I noticed that the bathroom window was open. I realized that the intruders was were in the toilet because the toilet door was closed and I did not see anyone in the bathroom. I heard movement inside the toilet. The toilet is inside the bathroom and has a separate door. It filled me with horror and fear of an intruder or intruders being inside the toilet. Come on. Come on. I thought here they must have entered through the unprotected window as I did not have my prosthetic legs on and felt extremely vulnerable. I knew I had to protect Riva and myself. I believe that when the intruders came out of the toilet, he would be in grave. We would be in grave danger. I felt trapped as my bedroom door was locked and I, I have limited mobility on my stumps. End quote. Okay. Again, his version of events. Mm-hmm. He goes on to describe the moment when he claims to have realized that Riva was, in fact, the person behind the toilet door. Quote, when I reached the bed, I realized that Riva was not in bed. That is when it dawned on me that it could have been Riva who was in the toilet. I returned to the bathroom calling her name. I tried to open the toilet door, but it was locked. I rushed back into the bedroom and opened the sliding door exiting onto the balcony and screamed for help. Realized that he didn't mention anything about the cricket bat Mm -hmm. in that version. Okay. The prosecution cross-examined Pistorius about his version of events for five days. They also called a witness, uh, the neighbor of Pistorius, who damningly claimed to have heard a man and a woman arguing. Mm, Yeah. And, quote, blood-curdling screams shortly before the gunshots were fired. 
So there was an altercation. Yeah. Yeah. The defense cross-examined the neighbor, asking if the screams could have been Pistorius raising his voice in distress. Like confronting the burglar. Right. And then rolling his car five times. (laughs) And the neighbor insisted that she had heard two voices Mm. in the argument. Mm Mm-hmm. The prosecution also introduced text messages between Riva and Pistorius in which a few of them included accusations from Riva that he was jealous and possessive. Ooh. Yeah, all those tracks. Yeah. In one message, she wrote, quote, I'm scared of you sometimes of how you snap at me. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not good. The defense countered this by pointing out that There had been 1,700 messages between them, and only, quote, four conversations were argumentative, and that all of these resolved very quickly, end quote. But, like, the fact that she said, I'm scared of you. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't do most of my arguing with my husband via text message. Also, I like that face-to-face combat. Also, they've only been together three months, Mm -hmm. and in abuse situations... Usually the abuser can, like, keep up the facade for Mm -hmm. about three months. Mm -hmm. And then that is when that facade begins to crumble. Slip, yeah. Because it's they're playing a character Mm -hmm. and they they can't keep it up for longer than that. Yeah, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Right. Also, there were signs of abuse in Pistorius' past relationships. So Mm -hmm. his ex-girlfriend, Samantha Taylor had stated publicly that, quote, he used to lock her in his house with no food for hours at a time. Oh, my God. Call her parents many times a day to track her movements and physically Mm -hmm. abuse and threaten her to the extent that she feared for her life, end quote. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. And those two dated for about 18 months, and so she had, like, more time to experience... Yeah, Abuse from him yeah, Mm -hmm. and controlling behavior. Mm -hmm. So throughout the highly publicized trial, Pistorius had numerous dramatic outbursts Mm. in the courtroom, which included him sobbing, howling, and even vomiting. Honey, something's not right. No, that's not normal. You're a mess. Mm Mm-hmm. So the judge, Judge Masipa, ultimately ruled that Pistorius was not guilty of murder, but was guilty of culpable homicide, the equivalent of manslaughter, Mm. which I don't feel like was the right verdict. But also this judge is like weighing what a jury or not a jury, but like what will hold up, what will hold up a lot of race issues in this Mm. country. He's Mm. a very famous person. It was a huge deal. Well, and also, again, I'm looking at this through an American lens. I do not understand the judicial system of other countries. I simply don't. But if this were happening in the U.S. and the and the, the state's prosecution could not prove premeditation, right? Then, a, then it would it would be a similar situation, right. right? So, like, it tracks to me that 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 would be a conscious choice in this case to make sure that this person goes away for something that will stick Mm -hmm. rather than risk having a conviction completely overturned. Yeah, because it's not going to hold up over time. So the judge sentenced him to five years in prison and he served only one year of this sentence before being released to serve the rest of it under house arrest. Of course. But don't worry, there's a lot more. Yeah. 
Just the privilege of it all. Oh, also, which I did not realize until researching this case, and I thought that I was pretty, you know, up on this case. I didn't realize that he had other charges from other incidents before this. Were they like dropped or charges that he'd already paid fines and done time for? Oh, we will get to it. So he was charged with reckless endangerment involving a firearm for a separate incident where he discharged a gun inside a restaurant. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. That's kind of a big one. And managed to skirt two other firearm charges, including for an incident where he shot his gun from the sunroof of his car. Oh, for fuck's sake. Jesus. Fucking rhinestone cowboy Mm -hmm. over here. God, take this man's guns away. Mm -hmm. Seriously. It's just like anywhere else in the fucking world. I mean, it's it. it, I don't know. It's just like the issues we deal with here exist in so many places. South Africa and the U.S. are like very similar. Right. There are a lot of parallels. And there's just so much rooted in racism. Like if a person Mm -hmm. of color did fucking something like that, they probably wouldn't even survive seeing their day in court necessarily. Uh Uh Mm -hmm. It's just fucking tragic. So the prosecution appealed and the case went back to court. This time the appeals court convicted him of murder. So Mm. the system is different in South Africa and the appeals can actually like ramp up the conviction. The charges. Okay. So it's like a retrial. Yeah. Wow. And their reasoning was that even if he did not realize that Riva was the one behind the locked door, he fired with the intention of killing whoever was inside. Yeah, a person. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so that, in and of itself, is premeditated murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the case was sent back to Judge Masipa for sentencing. During the sentencing hearing, his defense lawyer requested that he remove his prosthetic legs in the courtroom as a fucking show pony to demonstrate his vulnerability. Ugh. You know what? Okay. There's a lot, obviously a lot, to be said about disabled pe- folks with disabilities and amputees and vulnerability yeah but this guy is milking that Mm -hmm. oh yeah complete oh it's really gross how he's he is absolutely manipulating yes Mm -hmm. absolutely yes that's gross and it really does like fucking laugh in the face it spit in the face of very real ableism that fucks with yes people's day-to-day life and especially in, like, application of judicial process. Yeah. So I mean, it's just are, all around fucking gross. Right. Exactly. There are a lot of folks with disabilities who face very real challenges mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, being vulnerable, not receiving the level of care that they need, or, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to, like, advocate for themselves to receive the care, the quality care that they require. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is not that. Mm -mm. This is him using this as an excuse. Yeah, and he's exploiting that very real existence of ableist oppression. Yep, it's really gross. To to, to fix his his shit that he made. Yep, so they, you know, this was seen as a blatant attempt to make the judge, quote, pity his client Mm -hmm. and hand down a lighter sentence. It was, like, very much in the news and, like, at least people called him out for doing this, but Mm -hmm. whatever. It is possible, though, that it was an effective strategy because Judge Masipa sentenced Pistorius to only six years in prison rather than 15, which is actually the minimum sentence Mm -hmm. for murder. And somehow he basically got the sentence of manslaughter, even though he had been convicted of murder. 
Yeah. What the fuck is the point of that? Yeah. So he's currently still serving his sentence. He had, remember, he had been out for a while under house arrest. Mm -hmm. And I think I was there when he was under house arrest for a while. And then. Were you nervous? No. (laughs) Although I do know somebody who knows. She kept a golf club next to the bed. (laughs) You know someone who was? You got to. I know somebody who's friends with his sister. But anyway. Oh my Mm. God. I never met her. So that's all I know. But anyway. He's serving his sentence. He will be eligible for parole next year in 2023. Dang. In a piece piece for The Guardian during his trial, South African novelist Margie Orford described how, in addition to the all-too-common problem of domestic violence, which is very real in South Africa and everywhere around the world, Mm -hmm. the case also encapsulated the specific cultural baggage of post-apartheid South Africa. She wrote, quote, the figure of the threatening black stranger mm-hmm. has driven many South Africans into fortress-like housing estates mm-hmm. surrounded by electric fences, armed guards, and the relentless surveillance of security cameras. Thousand percent. I fucking. Mm-hmm. You we lived were, in one. <laughs> we were. We had no choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was required. The school wouldn't. They couldn't, the school could not get insurance if all of their staff didn't live in a gated, gated community. communities. Mm-hmm. So it's an institutional segregation yep. situation. A thousand percent. Yeah, to this I day. mean, our community was obviously like non segregated mixed race. It was a mix of, of white and black and, and, right, but and it's everything. Just like well, segregation it's like by default. It's like classist right. segregation. Classist, yes. Right, exactly. Yeah. Finishing the quote, the claim that Pistorius believed to be defending his home from an intruder inserts a third body into an all too familiar narrative of domestic violence. This imaginary body of the paranoid imaginings of suburban South Africa has lurked like a boogeyman at the periphery of this story. Mm -hmm. It is the threatening body, nameless and faceless, of an armed and dangerous black intruder Perhaps this is the real fascination of the story for us. These three bodies, one dead, one imagined, and one on trial, will play different roles. So many men in South Africa exist in this state of macho hair trigger tension in which action comes all too often before thought. Mm-hmm. Not just in South Africa. Yeah, right. you know, in the U.S. too. So many parallels. This trial will have to weigh one version of macho against another. Either Steenkamp died because of Pistorius's drive for the ultimate control over a woman that comes if you kill her. Mm-hmm. Or she died an innocent bystander of that other macho, which has not faded in the 20 years since apartheid, where a notion of total onslaught comes from a deeply entrenched fear of the Svart Gavar, the black peril. Svart is mm-hmm. black and Gavar means danger, end quote. So, God. I mean, that's very much true. It's like all the, there was this like m- excuse, this mentality among a lot mm-hmm. of white South Africans of like, well, there are lots of intruders. Mm-hmm. And like, there are, but at the same time, if you have enough of these like, systems in place like right that's your st- that's still fucking paranoia mm-hmm. it's still bullshit Ugh. yeah <sighs> it's it's such like a layered and intersectional issue and yep nuanced really and nuanced and systemic on a thousand fucking levels and the domestic- and it is like it's not written in stone that it's like segregation or 
but it is it is targeted to the black community. Like it just it, that's how it plays out here. Or that's how it plays out there. Oh, absolutely. The mm-hmm. the yes. And it's yeah. a little bit different there because the demographics are so different and like mm-hmm. 93% of the country is black. And so, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. In the U.S., that's like not the case, but we still have that s- those same prejudices. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's a very interesting case, but he fucking did it. And mm-hmm. every time oh, people yeah. learn that I lived in South Africa, they like ask me about him and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, we fucking did it. Yeah. It was domestic violence. He was an abuser. This poor woman, you know, she was she was starting to pick up on the fact that he was controlling and violent, mm-hmm. but it was also so new and so fresh. Right. That, you know, what, what there's nothing she more she could have done to protect herself. It was just he's just a horrible, paranoid, mm-hmm. violent man. Controlling yeah. and man. And then he and then he tapped into like manipulation and ableism and racism to defend himself. Uh And frankly, it fucking worked. worked. It fucking worked. Fame, white privilege and, Mm -hmm. and manipulating ableism to his benefit. I knew he was a piece of shit, but I really hadn't spent time analyzing this case. Mm -hmm. And it is like so much more layered in how shitty he is. Uh than I even knew. I'm yeah. glad that our fan picker requested this case because yeah. that's and nuts. like it's the deep. fact that he's like it has athletic accomplishments as a disabled mm-hmm. person. Like, okay, great, fine. That's that does, great. Doesn't outweigh Mm-mm. everything else he's done, and it Listen. certainly doesn't outweigh the value of this poor woman's life. No, you can lose your legs and still be a piece of shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like Margie. I like Margie's paragraph at the end, though. That Very kind of interesting. ties it all together in a really concise, interesting way. All right, let's dive into this update on Oscar Pistorius. He was released on parole 11 years after killing Reva Steenkamp. Officials confirmed Pistorius was, quote, at home on Friday morning, having served half of his more than 13-year sentence. Ms. Steenkamp's mother said that she accepted the decision to release the former athlete, but added her family was the one serving a life sentence. His parole conditions are as follows. Under South African law, all offenders are entitled to be considered for parole, meaning early release under certain conditions once they have served half of their total sentence, for which Pistorius was finally set at 13 years and five months. Until his sentence expires in 2029, he will live under strict rules, confining him to the home for certain hours of the day, as well as banning him from drinking any alcohol. He is also not permitted to speak to the media. In addition, Pistorius will be required to have therapy to help deal with issues around gender-based violence and anger. The Steenkamp family has submitted a reaction to his release, and they say, quote, Miss Steenkamp's mother, June, asked, has there been justice for Riva? Has Oscar served enough time? There can never be justice if your loved one is never coming back and no amount of time served will bring Reva back. Who uh, We who remain behind are the ones serving a life sentence. She added, my only desire is that I will be allowed to live my last years in peace with my focus remaining on the Reva Rebecca Steenkamp Foundation to continue Reva's legacy. With that update, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Ever considered your clothes as like the storybook of your life's chapters? Mm. I mean, I just posted yesterday 
a picture of me 15 years ago. I was wearing a yes. lace cami and like obsessed pinstripe flared dress yep. pants. That was so iconic. That was a chapter. Yeah. So picture having the ideal wardrobe to match your 2024 era. Mm. Which is not the same as your 2009 era. We're not bringing back layering popped collars <laughs> this year. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. So whether you're picking up a new activity this year, if you're looking for maternity wear, or if you're mm -hmm. simply bored of your old choices, your popped collars, the stylists at Stitch Fix can curate the perfect look for your unique journey. I love Stitch Fix and I wasn't even like looking for new wardrobe, new styles. I just wanted to make my shopping experience easier within the style parameters that I already like. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Stitch Fix is the best way to shop styles, whether new or consistent with how you already like to dress and different brands. Like you think of them as your style partner. So your stylist is a person, not just like an algorithm. <laughs> and they learn about your tastes and collaborate with you on looks that you'll love without breaking the bank. You simply share your preferences, your sizes and your budget. And Stitch Fix sends you five items in a fix right to your door. So you don't have to like be in a claustrophobic changing room with always fluorescent lighting and like a weird fun house mirror. Yeah. yeah. Why do they do this to us? I don't understand. With your choices in mind and sizes from extra small to 3XL, they find your perfect fit and you can try everything on at home. You keep what you like and send back the rest. They have shipping and returns already taken care of for you. They're always free. They just include a bag that already is labeled that you put the stuff you don't want in and you give it to your mail person and you don't even have to think about it. They have over a thousand brands and styles. No matter what season of life you're in, Stitch Fix has you covered. You simply order a refresh as needed, or you can set it and forget it with regular fixes. You are totally in control. Over time, Stitch Fix and their season style experts will match you with greater precision to perfect pieces for you based on your likes and dislikes. It is so easy. It is so easy. So thanks, Stitch Fix. They just get us, and they will get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com gals. And you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash gals, stitchfix.com forward slash G-A-L-S and treat your wardrobe. Treat it. Y'all, if you've been listening to the show for a minute, you know that I love a gallery wall. I love maximalism. I love <laughs> printing and framing all of the most fun memories and moments of my life. Okay? You got a lot of pictures. I have so many pictures and FrameBridge makes it easy and affordable to custom frame just about anything. And let me tell you, they have for me, my entire house is like a living FrameBridge museum of my life. It's also not even just like two dimensional pieces. No. You can, you could FrameBridge like a shirt. A concert ticket. So much. So much cool stuff. And let me tell you, I have so much frame bridge in my house because mm -hmm. I take so many pictures. You do. I've also like recently indulged in a newborn photo shoot. And yes. I'm not picking a favorite. No. Are you printing kidding? all of them and covering your entire house like wallpaper in frame bridge photos of your baby? Absolutely. In Joy. really cute frames, by the way. Mm -hmm. So FrameBridge is super fast. They ship your finished frame directly to your house in days. Their pricing is also very, very fair and transparent. So if you've mm -hmm. ever brought something to a frame shop, 
Mm, you might wild. have had like some sticker shock because it can get quite pricey. Hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Framebridge starts at extremely reasonable prices that are based simply upon the size of your piece and you'll know exactly what you're paying up front. And mm-hmm. they don't just do one-off frames. They have a popular line of like Amanda's favorite, curated mm-hmm. gallery walls. So each wall comes with a life-size hanging guide. So you, too, you, too, can have the confidence to put up a gallery wall. To install it and have it look amazing. In just just a few minutes. And they also have a happiness guarantee. So if you're not 100% happy with your piece for any reason, they will make it right. And if you're nervous about shipping in, like, you know, your your grandpa's lapel or, like, whatever you're having framed. A beloved heirloom that you want framed. (laughs) Or like a one of a kind, like a fo- like a like a photograph. Right, right. You don't have to worry because they send you the most like sturdy, secure, reliable. This like the Tom Hanks of mm-hmm. packaging. Correct. To send your piece in, they frame it, they send it back. It's very secure. It's very well packaged. You don't have to worry about anything breaking. It's so fast, and you know what? Your walls deserve it. Your walls deserve to be adorned in your favorite memories, so you got to give FrameBridge a try. So now that Lucy has totally sold you on FrameBridge, I'm going to tell you quickly how it works. You order online at FrameBridge.com, and you can either upload a digital photo for them to print, which I love because it's like I have so many fun pictures on my phone that I don't look at all the time. Um, And then they'll frame that. Or like Lucy mentioned, you can mail in your art or a photograph or a piece you want framed. They will send you free, secure, prepaid packaging to mail back your art. And FrameBridge custom frames your piece in their studio using the highest quality materials and ships it to your door for free. Ready to hang, baby. So join us by visiting FrameBridge.com or head to one of their retail stores to custom frame just about anything and treat your walls. Treat them. Today, I will be revisiting the case of Brittany Drexel from episode 201, Twisted Timelines. This case update has probably been sent to us more than any other case update we've ever received. So I'm super pumped about this. And, you know, just to refresh your memory a little bit on this case... Brittany's parents were getting divorced in 2008. She's super upset about it. Kind of one of her ways to cope is like she wants to go on a trip. She packs her bags. She's heading to Myrtle Beach. She's doing some spring breaking. Her mom had said no to going on that trip, but she did it anyway. And she checked in with her mother on April 25th, 2009, just saying she was at the beach. Didn't say where. So her mom assumed that she was like at one of the Lake Ontario beaches near Rochester. But it turns out she was not there. There's a lot in this case. There are podcasts and online forums completely dedicated to this case. I'm not going to be able to cover it all, so don't Mm -hmm. at me. Mm -hmm. So we are discussing the disappearance of 17-year-old, at least at the time of her disappearance, Brittany Drexel. Oh. So she was born in 1991 in Rochester, New York. Racha cha, the city that always sleeps. <laughs> and shortly after she was born, her mother Dawn married a man who was not her biological father. Her biological father, uh, some reports said he was Turkish and they were like estranged. It could have been just a, a fling situation. Mm-hmm. Dawn became pregnant. Shortly after Brittany was born, she married a man named Chad Drexel, hence Brittany Drexel, because he adopted her. Okay. So Brittany was a pretty typical teen of the early aughts, like 
looking at photos of her is basically like looking through our high school yearbook. A lot Uh-oh. of distinctive eyeliner, mm-hmm. hair straightening, like mm-hmm. frosty really eyeshadow. Yeah, a little frosted. God mm-hmm. bless her. Lip venom. Oh, mm-hmm. she also wore distinctive contact lenses because she was born with persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous in the right eye, which you could look up what that means. But essentially, it after multiple corrective surgeries, she ended up blind in her right eye. Oh, my which I know can relate to. Mine's my left. Well, there You're you go. Right. I'm but googling yeah. this hypo. So her parents split up, Chad and Dawn split up in 2008, which was really hard for Brittany. It had an impact on her performance in school, left her with feelings of depression. I mean, she was like 16 when you're when her parents were getting divorced. That's a really it's a hard time anytime to go through that. Mm -hmm. But like any teen in general, but also any teen going through tough times, the opportunity to kind of escape and go have fun with friends was extremely alluring. So in 2009, the year after her parents split up, when she was invited on a spring break trip to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Oh, my God. A high-traffic spring break destination. Mm -hmm. She was, like, super fixated on going. She really wanted to go. And her mother, Dawn, was open to it, but after, like, looking into the details of this trip was not on board. My mom would have laughed in my face. I mean... No. I couldn't even go to Warp Tour. You guys both got to go to Warp Tour. I, I never got, got to true. go. That was daytime. Yeah, that's funny that you weren't allowed to go. Even though. if this had been, like, maybe your parent, your mom would have laughed in your face if this was, like, a fully legitimate, planned out trip, but this was not. This was a trip with friends that Dawn, the mother, like, really didn't know, there wouldn't be any adult supervision, no chaperone. They're 17, yeah, 18 years old. Yeah, my mom would have just been like, that's so cute. Ah, ah, yeah, exactly. Everyone knows you're going to be drinking and fucking your way yeah. through this entire vacation. That's yeah. not 100%. happening. Yeah. So Dawn, shut it down mm-hmm. immediately, As just like any have. of our moms would. I would have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Brittany had it set in her mind to go. And after several days of sparring with her mother, like they were fighting a lot. And Brittany tells her mother, like I need to just go stay at a friend's house for a day or two. I need to cool off. Like I can't be around you anymore. And Don is like, "Fine, get get out get of here. Out. I, I don't want you around right now." Really Myrtle Beach. Yeah. Well, <laughs> funny that you should say that, Kenyon, because no, Don did agree to this, and Brittany packed a little bag and left. But what Don didn't know is that her daughter was not going to a friend's house, but rather heading south to join in the fun at Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. So where'd Brittany, she start out? Rochester, New York. So that's a that's a, that's a dry, that's a haul. It's a haul. Brittany did check in with her mother by phone on April twenty fifth, two thousand nine, and mentioned she was quote at the beach. So she's like not lying, but failed to mention where. Which so, beach? Which beach? So Dawn <laughs> also, assumed a- that she April was April in upstate New York. Well, yeah, it's funny beach. that you should say that. Dawn assumed she Mm. was at a nearby popular Lake Ontario spot because it was unseasonably warm in Rochester at that time. And it was spring break. It was in the 80s. So a bunch of the teens were like hanging out at that beach. We're at a local beach. Correct. Oh, shit. Which normally wouldn't be the case, but because it was so warm that week. Unseasonably warm. Yep. So she didn't even think about it. She's like, all right, she's at that. She's at the lake beach. Whatever. It's fine. Um, Had no clue. She got lucky. 
And Brittany didn't mention that she had left town at all. I think Brittany knew exactly what she was saying on uh-huh. the phone to her mother. Yeah. I don't think it was Brittany getting lucky. I think it was yeah. a teenager knowing what to say without yeah. saying everything. Well, it's not. It's not that what right. she. It's not what she said. It's about the timing of the circumstances, right? And the temperature that she got lucky. Totally, that's fair. <laughs> wow. So Brittany had made it safely to Myrtle Beach and met up with her friends at the Bar Harbor Hotel around 8 p.m. She was seen on security cameras leaving the hotel and heading toward a different hotel called the Blue Water Resort where she told her tripmates that she was meeting another friend who was down there for spring break. So security footage captured her arriving at the Blue Water Resort and then leaving again around 8.45 p.m. Mm-hmm. So there's like nothing suspicious in the footage at this point. She's fully dressed. She has her purse. She's coming and going of her own she's, accord. Yeah, she's walking. Yeah. Yep. Her boyfriend, John Greco, was supposed to be on the trip as well, which is another reason why... <laughs> Dawn was like, meow, meow. Yeah, I probably would have done the same thing. Oh, for sure. Uh, now that you mentioned her boyfriend's on the trip. I'm, I'm lying and driving to Myrtle <laughs> Beach. Like, I would yeah. have done this. Oh, I, yeah. I, I'm going to Sam Ploldblur's house, and I'm <laughs> just kidding, Mom. Your high school boyfriend is a fucking irresistible magnet. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It, it just is. Myrtle Beach I would have been way too scared. Her church parking well, lot. Well, your mom's scary. Yeah. yeah. My mom would have driven to Myrtle Beach. My baby's in <laughs> that and beach. And found me on a beach. My, my child. Ba- my baby's in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the boyfriend, John, was supposed to be on this trip, but ended up having to work over spring break. So he stayed in Rochester, New York. So Brittany was in touch with John and he knew that she was down there. And on the night of the 25th, they had been consistently texting back and forth. But the text messages from Brittany abruptly stopped around 9.15 p.m. So she's left the friend's hotel room Mm -hmm. at 8.45. She's wandering, texting with her boyfriend. Yep. And then all of a sudden, 9.15, John is like, why aren't you texting me back? What's going on? So she's alone at this point. Yes. So John was concerned that she wasn't responding. So he called like the girlfriends that she was down there with. They couldn't confirm where she was because she had left to go meet this other friend. Everybody's wasted. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's 915. I don't think Brittany necessarily was because she'd only she had just gotten there. She was Mm -hmm. she basically got there, put down her stuff, got changed. She'd been driving all day and then she's going to meet a friend. But I Mm -hmm. think that as the night progressed, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. But we can't confirm. Right. I'm just, I'm just. I'm sure the friends were hammered. friends probably were. That's got to be spot on. But who knows? So these girls can't get a hold of her. John can't get a hold of her. So John is like, this is scary. I don't like this. So he calls Brittany's mother, Dawn. Good for him. I, I feel know. like that would be a That's gutsy a right move. move. And also, uh, uh, trust as a teenager. Your, trust your gut kind of move. Yep. Where you're like, I really think that something is wrong, and I know, and I know that I'm, I'm going to get, get in her trouble. in super big trouble. But, but he like, cares about her, so mm-hmm. he did it. Uh, yeah, I him. was also very impressed with that, where mm-hmm. it's like teenage boy using their brain. I can't yeah. fathom what it would have taken for any of my teenage boyfriends to speak to my mother. Seeing me dead <laughs> <laughs> might get a call. Well, also like the fact that her girlfriends who were down there didn't call mm-hmm. or, right. you know, like, see, like send some 
some well, sort of alarm. Well, at this point, she's, they haven't, she said she was going to find somebody else. Exactly. They're not with her, and she's only been in town for a couple hours. I can see yeah. they're off doing their own thing. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so, I mean. Yes. In, for for the boyfriend from a long distance away, he's yep. not really involved in the situation at all. Right, to she's have that instinct. for, like, what a half hour 45 minutes to be like um no this is not right if you leave me on red for half an hour i am calling the police i don't if you have your red receipts on (laughs) i'm calling the police (laughs) i hate it bill always has his on and it is infuriating (laughs) so on the night of the 25th like i said they've been consistently texting 9 15 he calls them up so this is don's first time hearing that Brittany is in fucking myrtle beach she immediately calls her ex-husband, Chad, Brittany's adoptive father, as well as the Rochester PD in the hopes that they could connect her or connect themselves with authorities in South Carolina. And by the morning of April 26th, the search is in full swing. So we've got a minor spring break in a spring break hotspot. Oh, yep. my God. Yep. Oh we've got a God. minor female missing exactly in a spring break, like top 10. Beach oh, town. God. So through security camera footage and interviews with the friends that she was traveling with, investigators were able to determine that the last person she was seen with was a 20 year old guy named Peter Brosowitz. 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 And I literally wrote with the last name that begins with bro. He could only be a nightclub promoter. <laughs> yeah. oh. And he was a nightclub <laughs> promoter. Oh, no. Of course. Yeah. I'm sure everybody called Brittany, him bro. No. And they were like, oh, but what's your real name? It's bro. It's Brozowitz. Oh, I mean, talk oh. about the party was born to play, baby. It's bonks. Oh, uh. Um. So and he looks like James Franco in Spring Breakers probably. with the grill. Spring Break. Spring, Spring Break. Break. He was also from Rochester, and this is how Brittany knew him. He was Spring Breaking in Myrtle Beach as well, but he didn't live down there full time. So the two had gone to a nightclub together on the evening of the 25th, apparently, or like made a plan to do this. This is kind of unclear. Investigators questioned Peter and his bros, who were all sharing a hotel room for the trip. But these interviews did not yield significant leads. Because they were probably hammered. Yeah. Which brings the investigation to tracking Brittany's cell phone. So she had her purse and her cell phone on her the night that she disappeared, and cell tower pings were able to track the phone south along Route 17, traveling nearly 60 miles away from Myrtle Beach before all pings abruptly ended the morning of the 26th. So the phone either died or was destroyed at that time. That's the theory. But it still traveled 60 miles from yep. where she was. Yep. Ooh. 60 oh, miles. No. So a search team headed to the area where the last ping was recorded, and an exhaustive 11-day search for any shred of evidence came up pretty much empty. Like, they couldn't find her the phone They couldn't find clothing. They can't find her purse. They can't find her body. Like, there's nothing tangible that they can enter into evidence. So at this point, here's what we know. And shout out to the online forum, websleuths.com, for compiling this timeline. The 25th of April, 7.55-ish p.m., Brittany enters the Blue Water Resort. 8 p.m., her boyfriend, John, is, like, in consistent phone contact with Brittany. Still around 8 p.m., Brittany is basically in Peter Bro's room at the Blue Water Resort. 
between 8 o'clock and 8.10. It's kind of Wait, murky. Wait, do they know that because of the pings? Not because of the pings. Because this is because Peter of the Brooke security said. footage at this point. Oh, okay. okay. And Peter's like eyewitness, yes, I was with her at this time. So between 8 o'clock and 8.10, there's a call that comes into Peter's room, I guess, like to contact Brittany from one of her female travel mates about like a pair of shorts that her friend was looking for. Classic. Like, yeah, like I want to wear these shorts. Where are my fucking shorts? I think some reports say that like Brittany was wearing the shorts yeah, in question. Of course. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Bitch, give me those shorts. Bitch, give me my shorts. <laughs> so 8.13 p.m., Brittany's leaving the Blue Water Resort and maybe because she's wearing the shorts, that's why she's like heading back toward her actual her hotels so she can give yeah. the shorts back to her friend so between 8 13 and 8 20 this is a seven minute block that we can't track her like we don't know where she is she's not picked up if she was like telling her friend that she was heading back to the hotel there's a certain camera that she should have been picked up on and she's not but around 8.45 p.m., the friend who had called about the shorts does receive a text message from Brittany saying, I'm on my way back to the hotel. So that could have been Brittany who wrote that. She could have also been abducted already at that point, And somebody used her phone to mm-hmm. lay a trap or like, gain a little know, time. Right. Cover a trail. 9.15 or p.m. Or she could have just taken a different route to the hotel. She could have. Yeah, again, we don't we don't know because the footage that would have shown her or that they think the most likely camera that she should have crossed, she didn't cross. So we don't know her location at this point. Mm. But then at 915, Brittany sends that last that last text to her boyfriend. John texts back like a minute later. He doesn't get a response Mm. and he's texting her and texting her and texting her. Hasn't Mm. can't get in touch with her at this point in this like 15 minute slot. He's calling the friends they don't know where she is they're not answering you know that's so quick i know but really quick people would wait days of me not responding i could see teenagers though (laughs) in an active conversation with somebody who then all of a sudden was not answering i'd probably be like their phone died yeah but this was also 2008 or 2009. So phones like didn't die. They just I lasted mean, forever. Yeah, Nokia. Earlier today, I should have called the police because I didn't hear back from Kenyon. I was depression napping. <laughs> she was napping. We just call your husband. Yeah. That's the way we do it. But he's at work today. Yeah. But either way, John bursts into action a lot faster. So around 9.30, John calls Dawn and is like, I was just talking to Brittany. Now she's not answering the phone. What's going on? Then we get into the the cell tower pings. So the first, like, significant ping is at between, like, 11 p.m. and midnight on the 25th that is showing that the cell phone, at least, is moving out of Myrtle Beach and heading south. That's so scary. I know. And then we've got 1 to 2 a.m., Peter and the bro crew uh, actually leave Myrtle Beach to head back home to Rochester. So like one and two a.m. I guess that's what this says on the 26th. Oh, I don't like that. I know. I don't like it either. But these guys do get interviewed multiple times and it just like doesn't circle back to them. But I I could see them being. I did leave a place at one or two a.m. with a bunch of girlfriends on a spring break trip. Yeah. Driving from D.C. back up to upstate New York. Yeah. So it, you basically did exactly but, this. So same I basically thing. did exactly this. 
Corey did the same hmm. thing, trying to leave for some sort of like West Coast road trip, but he was bartending at the time. So they left right when he got off work at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. make it to like whatever destination city by right. 8. They're, they're fucking 20 and yeah. they probably had to like yeah. be at work the next day or something yeah, stupid. Something I got this This on paper sounds really suspect, but Bonkers. we've all done it. So yeah. We did it because we were staying at like a friend's college apartment and mm-hmm. he had like a bajillion roommates and I was like, my friends and I are on spring break. We're driving back and we crashed at yours. And he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, of course. And then like the five of us got there and there was like nowhere for us to sleep. Yep. And like college, high school, <laughs> spring break, like what is time? Right. Everything <laughs> revolves anyway. around your budget and your sobriety. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like there are no rules. We're out of money and one of us is sober. Let's just fucking go. Let's just, go. just, just go. go. Yeah. Literally I'm, been there. what we did. <laughs> so between 1 a.m. and about 5 a.m., the cell phone is continuing to ping towers until it dies or is broken. So the last ping apparently happens... Like about 60 miles away at about 5 a.m. But south. Um, yeah. Not like she was like, this is weird. I'm going home. No, she's in. Yeah, she's not mm-hmm. heading to Rochester. She's going further south. And she's not with any of her friends. Right. Mm-hmm. Around the same time. So between like 4.50 and 5 a.m. is when Brittany is officially reported missing to the Myrtle Beach Police Department. Because uh, as we know, Dawn was informed the night before. And now Dawn is like. No one can get in touch with her. Fucking she's yeah. missing what's so going Rochester on. So Rochester PD contacts Myrtle yep. Beach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So around 5.45 a.m., the Myrtle Beach Police Department get into the room at the bar hotel. No one's home in the room, but like stuff is there. So the girls probably are either still out or like hmm. partying somewhere else, whatever. Around so 11 all a- of her shit is there. Yes. Her stuff is dropped Except off. for her, her phone. Purse, Except yep, for her, 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 po- her purse, her phone, and like the articles of clothing that were on her person. The shorts. Are, yep, the shorts. The shorts. Are missing. And I actually am not 100% sure if she had her own room or if she was sharing a room with somebody else. I didn't even think about this because myself in, at 33 is like, well, she had her own room. Of course, nobody was present. But I also didn't see anything else significant in my research that was like, there should have been other people in this room and they weren't there. So it's yeah. possible she just had like a cheap, shitty room that she got last old. minute. She's what, like, se- she's 17. 17. So I don't, I don't know if you she can even get a hotel room, room on your own. <laughs> she didn't. So she was staying somewhere, but that room was empty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the girls could have passed out in the adjacent room. Who fucking knows? Gotcha. But it wasn't that that isn't like a significant part of the timeline. And the last thing on here is that about 11 a.m. on the 26th, Brittany's travel friends like completely check out of the bar hotel and they move to a different hotel. Because now I guess like that area is basically a crime scene, not a crime scene, but like under investigation. So they leave and go to a different hotel, but they're not leaving town. They're still being interviewed by police. Okay. so searches continued for two weeks before being called off by the Myrtle Beach Police Department on May 10th of 2009 after their efforts had not uncovered conclusive evidence as to Brittany's whereabouts. Her family and friends continued to search over the next year with her mother, Dawn, even permanently moving from Rochester to Myrtle Beach to devote herself to finding her daughter. Around the time of that, like, two-week, well, we didn't find anything, so we're calling this search off, but we're keeping the case open, Dawn hired a private investigator 
Good. Dawn's doing everything she possibly can. A thousand percent. Oh. So this investigator also brought in cadaver dogs to assist in the search, and they did pick up a scent near a, quote, alligator pit. Don't don't like that. Do not like that. Which former investigator turned PI Steve Pickering, this is the guy that she'd hired, said in an interview, quote, it helps piece it together. It helps corroborate what other people said, which we'll get to. It's not conclusive, but it certainly adds to the totality of the evidence that's been gathered so far. Um, so he and his team were able the to recover. Pit? Yes, and we'll get to it. He and his team were able to recover some <laughs> evidence at the site, the which they presented pit? to the FBI. And I think the evidence they uncovered was like these cadaver dogs had her scent that led us here. This fits into the puzzle this way. It wasn't so they're like they're tracking. Oh, her specific scent. Correct. Yeah. It was, but the, what they couldn't get where it says like it's not conclusive is it's not like, oh, here's her shoe. Right. Or, you know, they, they don't have anything physical the dog's they can alert, hand over. Right. But that's yeah. all they got. So he continues to say, quote, the only problem I see is law enforcement didn't gather it, like didn't gather this cadaver dog evidence. So they might have a question of continuity, mm. but I am a retired law enforcement official who gathered it Mm -hmm. so like as a respected forensic analyst uh, and a respected forensic analyst processed it and testified in court before so that whole breakdown of like well the cops weren't the ones to gather it pickering says that's a hurdle that a prosecutor in court could easily overcome by being like correct but it was gathered by a former officer and this active and and respected analyst processed this evidence. Yeah. The FBI should have accepted it, I but the FBI didn't. Way. Yeah. They didn't take the evidence. I mean, I can see that because, like the the credentials of a person experienced in collecting evidence from cadaver dogs, or even like the licensure of cadaver dogs themselves, right. like that expires. There's like training and blah blah blah. For sure. I th- not, yeah. not to I mean, say that this was incorrect evidence but like in terms of like judicial well that's submission that's for the evidence trick of like having any kind of private right exactly factors yeah. that does case. and it does suck i personally think that it should have been accepted even if it ends up not being admissible in court at least it could f- like flesh out some of this picture because there's so little to go on in this situation that it's like mm-hmm. Yeah. If you can if you can accept an anonymous tip and we'll kind of get to that like you should also accept this kind of evidence. But, you know, that's I feel like not- sh- I feel like it should be accepted in the fact that like, oh, this is like somewhat credible uh, It's a potential a- evidence. So yeah. let's use our currently accredited exactly. cadaver dogs and researchers to corroborate and like it. corroborate that. That Exactly, way. through yeah. the channels that we know will hold up in a court of law. I completely agree. So exactly. Obviously, that's not what fucking happened because nothing would turn up in this case for years. Okay, and then suddenly in 2016, a jailhouse informant. When did it our, first? When did she first disappear? 2009. So this is now seven years later, and a jailhouse informant points the finger at a suspect. So, a man named Timothy Deshawn Taylor was accused alongside his own father of kidnapping Brittany and holding her, quote, at a trap house, which is like a stash house, where she was gang raped and shot before her body was dumped in an alligator swamp. Oh, 
Oh, Jesus fucking so, Christ. Worst possible. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. Correct. Oh. But also, this is coming from a jailhouse informant, which is not Super the reliable. most solid or reliable source. How did how did Timothy Deshaun Taylor did he know her at all? Like was did he pluck her off the street? Sure What's the theory? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll kind of get to it. So the informant, who is a man named Taquan Brown, went to this alleged trap house to make a drug transaction and claims that he saw Timothy at this house with Brittany, that he saw him engaged in like an act of sexual assault with her. He further claimed that, or of her, not with her, sorry. He further claimed that Brittany tried to escape but was captured again in the front yard by Timothy. And afterward, Taquan claims to have heard gunshots from inside the house and to have seen a wrapped body being taken out of the house. So these statements could only be corroborated by, you guessed it, another jailhouse informant. When these allegations were brought to the FBI, Timothy was already being held on charges related to armed robbery of a McDonald's where he had acted as a getaway driver. So no charges were officially brought against him in Britney's case because there wasn't enough evidence to link him to it. But it's certainly suspicious how federal charges were all of a sudden brought down for his role in the robbery and pushed for much stricter sentencing Mm. once these allegations came to light, even though he had already been charged by the state. So it's definitely like... They had no real evidence. The feds of, were like, "We we're think putting you're you away a for really something. bad guy." Yeah, exactly. correct. So uh. we don't really have the hard evidence, but we want to punish you for something anyway. Authorities subjected him to a polygraph with questions about Brittany, which uh, they were quick to note he failed. But he also failed at the question of what is your name. So which, he. So then how can that be a fail if you fail at the control question? Exactly. That indicates what we, I feel like we often have this conversation about polygraph that like this testing is inaccurate at best. It's often not admissible in court for that very reason. Like, why do we still fucking do this? Also, like, I mean, this is horrible to say, but like maybe Taquan Brown did see Timothy assaulting someone and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, hurting someone. That's possible. I don't know, but how well, how how conclusive is it to know that it was Brittany and not right. some other missing person? Right, and we don't have additional corroborating evidence. If there's or nothing witnesses. to connect her to him. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's this is getting it, real. There's messy so many real holes. Quick. <laughs> it's very messy. So. Timothy was able to provide like vague information about an argument that he overheard between two individuals who may have been fighting over the location of Brittany's phone, but he couldn't confirm that this argument was even about Brittany and only that it was like notably suspicious. Was so this quote unquote trap house 60 miles south of Myrtle Beach? It was in a reasonably close proximity to the last cell phone ping. So there is reason to There's some follow this lead mm-hmm. if this is like this is a lead to explore mm-hmm. for sure. If this person is coming forward and saying, hey, this mm-hmm. I saw this look into this. Mm-hmm. But once again, they you know, they do. They are looking into it. And it's just this isn't sticking. Mm-hmm. And then in 2019, Taquan Brown, again, brings forward more information. So he claims that he had actually seen Brittany several times in the month after her disappearance. And it was his understanding that she had been killed about a month after she'd gone missing. 
which is kind of a different development from his original story, which didn't have very quite different. As, yeah, quite as wide story. of a timeline. So now he's saying in, in 2019, so like just a little over a year ago, he'd seen her in the house on April 27th, which is two days after she was abducted. Then he claims that he saw her again at the house a month later, and that's when the alleged escape attempt and shooting occurred. But once again, when corroboration of these claims is needed, it can't be found. So witnesses could confirm the existence and description of this like stash house in question, but nobody else can place Brittany there. Mm-hmm. The owner of the house, who happens to be Taquan's cousin, was dead before he could be questioned. I don't know how he died. Mm-hmm. And another corroborating witness that was named by Taquan just couldn't be located. Like, we don't know if this is even a real person. Or Taquan well, is like, also, oh, we'll also so go check in with this person. Is the theory that they, like, abducted her off the street and then Correct. held her at this home for a month? Correct. Which, I mean, like, it's possible. Why? It is possible. But it could also have been any other victim from i i think it's likely that she was abducted for nefarious reasons that something transpired i don't know who abducted her i have no clue um something transpired she died whether that it was accidental in you know mm-hmm. like a robbery or or, a, or an assault gone wrong horribly wrong even more wrong than the initial assault mm-hmm. and then she was taken out of town Mm-hmm. And her body was put in a literal alligator pit. Mm-hmm. I think that happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these people were were mm-hmm. involved in what happened, but I do think that that theory holds up. I she mean, was, it's definitely possible. It's just there's just such a lack of specific evidence. Exactly. Like the twisted timeline is really just a massive hole. And then this like weird fill in the blank maybe this happened Mm -hmm. from someone years later that we can't 100% confirm. I think that people are abducted, kidnapped, whatever, like all sorts of people for really stupid casual reasons with really no rhyme or reason Mm -hmm. for a variety of different purposes she probably just found, I mean, it sounds like she found herself at the wrong place, the wrong time, and whatever. Her mom, she her was mom, just the victim, was a victim of a really random, she was a casual, young, callous. I think it could have been random. Cra- crime. Her mom also has some theories that mm. could hold water. I mean, of course, everybody wants to cry trafficking when something like this happens. Well, so we like also, that's, we want to find reasons why this exactly. happened. And I think well, that all too often there is no reason. Mm. There's also like, There is how systemic human trafficking typically occurs. There are patterns of how something typically Mm -hmm. occurs. That's not to say that a few rando, uh, you know, spring spring breakers wandering alone. Mm -hmm. Trying to prove something don't get it in their heads to try to pull some shit and Mm -hmm. pluck someone off the street during spring break at Myrtle Beach. Totally. And try their hand at trafficking. And her mom also wonders... Her mom also wonders... We've all seen Alpha Dog. Yes. I don't know what that Um, is. Her mom also (laughs) wonders if she was, like, lured down there with the promise of, like, a modeling gig because she was, like, doing some very low-level, like, 17-year-old girl from rochester new york kind of modeling where it's like local glamour shots kind of stuff right 
And her mom, you know, obviously looking back and your daughter is missing and you're overanalyzing every argument argument you had before your kid takes off to go on a spring break trip that you didn't approve. And her mom is like, she was so adamant about going down there. I'm convinced that somebody was luring her down there. Right. And that instinct could be real, but she also could just be a 17-year-old girl who was told she can't go on spring break with her friends. And she was going to go down there by any means necessary. And then a horrible, random act of violence occurred. And she is now most likely no longer with us. Also, if you're a predator... Of course you're going to be hanging out around fucking Myrtle Beach at spring break. It's it's easy pickings. Yeah. So Drunk it's just people and whatever. It's just such a hard situation because in there's truly no way to know right now. Not with the information that's been re- released to the public. Yeah. And these private investigators think that they are really close. And I think that there is some potential for corroborating Taquan's theory or Taquan's, uh, you know, allegations not of what happened it out. that night. We're not ruling it out, but there's nothing yeah. solid enough to, yeah. to connect those dots at this point. So this update comes as of May 16th, 2022. Remains of 17-year-old girl who went missing in 2009 found in South Carolina. The investigation led authorities to a site where they believe a 62-year-old man buried her body a day after she went missing. Raymond Douglas Moody of Georgetown is charged with murder, obstructing justice, kidnapping, and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. Authorities said Moody kidnapped and strangled the teen the same day she disappeared. Quote, today marks the beginning of a new chapter. The search for Brittany is now a pursuit of Brittany's justice. And that is a quote from her mother, Dawn. Moody remains in custody. It is unknown whether he has an attorney or at the time this was written, it was unknown. And CNN was unable to contact his family members. Obviously, we will be watching this case as it unfolds. And just as a reminder, you can send us additional updates that you come across on the contact page of our website, whiningcrimepodcast.com, or email us at whiningcrimepodcast at gmail.com with the subject line case update. So that wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Our production manager is Andrea Gardner. For photos and sources, check out our blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can follow us on all the socials at Wine and Crime Pod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support, and get access to all sorts of wine-fueled bonus content, visit our Patreon page. Cheers!